0: As you heard from Jacob, I'm the RUF pastor. RUF stands for Reformed University Fellowship, and that is our denomination's campus ministry arm. And uh, I get the pleasure of serving at, uh, at JMU there in Harrisonburg. Um, thank you for... Did that just come on? Okay. Okay. Thank you for putting me there, putting me there. Thank you for your support. Uh, thank you for your prayers. And and I would I would ask you to keep praying. If I could give you one thing in particular to pray for, we need more men. Um, JMU already is like 60-40 female to male. Um, and we just we've got a lot of guys in our orbit, but but not many pressing in, stepping up to lead and um, and, and commit to what God's doing through RUF. So pray for that. Um, also, if you would like to know how to pray more specifically, we have a newsletter that comes out about every two months. I'd love to get that to your mailbox if if you want to pray specifically for that. Um, we we love the scripture not only at Ruf but but in our in our denomination in, in this church. We love the scripture because through it and in it, God reveals Himself to us. God tells us who He is. He shows us who He is, and He also tells and shows us how we're to live before him. Uh, and God's a little bit bigger than we are, so he's gonna say things that are hard for us to understand. And if that's the case, or even hard for us to, to, to live by, if that's the case and you're struggling against something that you hear today or you've heard in the past, talk to me, talk to, to Derek, one of the elders here, or even some of the folks you see up front. We'd love to, to help you know how, how to walk faithfully under God's word. Um, we don't expect that's gonna come easy, so please take us up on that. Well, w- one of the quotes, uh, C.S. Lewis, you, you probably know is really quotable, and, and one, of the, one of the quotes he's most well-known for uh, is this one, and it kinda sets up a paradigm which is help for, uh, helpful for us to think about in terms of who is Jesus Christ. This book, the scripture, the Bible is all about Jesus. Genesis 1, Revelation 22, it's all about Jesus. And, and so that's an important question. Who is this Jesus? And, and C.S. Lewis in this quote sets up a paradigm that I think is going to help us really narrow how we think about who Jesus is. And, and then we're going to step into Mark 8 and look at what, what Jesus has to say about himself. But uh, let, me, let me let C.S. Lewis frame this conversation. Here's what he says. I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. The him is Christ. And as an example, I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on a level with the man who says he's a poached egg, or he would be the devil of hell himself. You must make your choice. Either this man, Jesus, was and is the Son of God, or else he's a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us, nor did he intend to. I think Lewis is right. Over and over, Jesus made claims to be Savior and Lord. And he was either lying or he was crazy or he was who he said he was. And so the most pressing question for every heart and soul in this room is when it comes to Jesus, who do you say that he is? When it comes to Jesus Christ, who do you say that he is? And we'll try to answer that question from Mark chapter 8 we'll also try to deal with the implications of how we answer that question. So if you've got a Bible, turn to Mark chapter 8. I think it's going to be on the screen behind us. I'm going to read verses 27 through 38. Mark 8, 27 through 38. Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say, Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. of him will the son of man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels as we approach this text jesus was in the midst of his three-year public ministry with his disciples traveling teaching healing and as the news of jesus was spreading throughout the region so was the opposition to jesus The religious elites were threatened by Jesus and they were doing everything they could to discredit him. And it's in that context that Jesus turned to his disciples and he asked them that question that we read just a few moments ago. Who do you say that I am? And Peter's the first one to speak up, which as you read the scriptures is often the case and he actually gets this one right. Peter speaks up and he says, you are the Christ. Which literally means, Jesus, you're the anointed one. Peter was saying that Jesus was the Messiah that was prophesied throughout the whole Old Testament, that he was the long awaited Savior. But why was Jesus pressing this question? I would suggest to you it's because he didn't want his disciples to miss this point. He wanted to be really sure that they were clear who he was. That he wanted to leave no room for error. Why? Because if you get Jesus wrong, you will get everything else wrong. This is where the Christian faith begins. This is where the gospel starts. You have to know. You've got to get right who Jesus is. I have a friend who many years ago joined the army he, he climbed up through the ranks in the army and part of his training in the army was jump school which is where you jump out of perfectly operating planes and, and he said they would they would have him and his squad jump out of the plane but they would put them in a landing zone eight or nine miles from where they were supposed to be and, and so once they landed they were to take their compass out and then find their way to to whatever target area they were going to. And I remember him coming back and talking to his dad, who was a friend of mine, and and he would say, Dad, it's amazing how if we didn't get it right on our compass, right from the start, how far off we could be at the end. And and think about that. You know that to be true. Like if I'm trying to get to the other side of Culpepper, one degree off here means I'm way off at the end. And so he would come home saying, Dad, we had to get it right at the beginning. And Jesus wants us to get this right. Right from the start, right at the beginning. Who do you say that Jesus is? Was he just a good teacher who came to give us an example of a moral life? Was he deluded and deranged like uh, the paradigm Lewis gave us and, and therefore to be denied? Was he a mysterious figure that we just can't know enough about? And, and so what's the point in getting all worked up about this Jesus? Or was he, as Peter declared, the promised Messiah? The risen Savior who came to save sinners and who reigns even now as Lord of all creation and Lord of you, and Lord of me. Who do you say that he is? You got to get this right. Right after Peter's confession, you are the Christ, Jesus makes a slight turn there in verse 31. He goes from who he was to what he came to do, and he says that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected and killed, and would rise again after three days. In that title, Son of Man, Jesus, was referring to himself, and he's clearly laying out for his disciples what his mission was. He came to suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, and then to rise again. If I could put that in one idea, Jesus came for the cross. Jesus came for the cross. And this whole suffering and cross nonsense did not fit Peter's idea of the Messiah. And you see the interaction there in your Bible. For Peter, the Messiah was supposed to be a power figure who would come and overthrow Roman Roman rule, not be a suffering Savior. And so again, you see it there. Peter takes Jesus aside to rebuke him. Think about that for a minute. Just after declaring you're the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah, Peter's now taking him aside to rebuke him. It's absurd. But Jesus just wasn't fitting into the mold that Peter had created for the Christ or the Messiah. And that's the problem. Jesus doesn't fit into our molds. We're okay with a loving Jesus, but but we don't care so much for a righteous Jesus. We like a forgiving Jesus, but we're not always so crazy about a holy Jesus. We like our cosmic Santa Claus Jesus who gives us what we want and when we want it, but not a sovereign Lord Jesus who demands all of who we are, kind of Jesus. We might even be okay with a Christ Jesus, but not the cross of Jesus. If we're honest with ourselves, we're really not that different from Peter, are we? We struggle with a suffering Savior because his suffering is a constant reminder of what our sin deserves. The cross stands as an indictment to everyone who has ever walked this earth because the cross tells us there's a debt that we're helpless to pay. The cross tells us that we are sinful and we need a Savior. But here's the good news. Jesus came to be that Savior. Jesus came to forgive our sin. Jesus came to pay that debt that we could not pay. We don't have to work for it. We do nothing to earn it. We simply put our trust in this Jesus who paid it all. On the cross, here's what Jesus accomplished. On the cross, the penalty of sin has been paid. The shame of sin has been covered. The power of sin has been conquered. And in Christ, we are set free and we are made new. And as much as Peter had a hard time with this idea of a suffering Savior, hear me when I say this, a suffering Savior is really good news for us. Because it's through his suffering on the cross that all those things were purchased for us. Well, as we get into that last section there in Mark chapter 8, after Peter, or Jesus, describing who he was and what he came to do, he now turns to his disciples and he tells them what their lives would be about, what their lives would look like. And he starts out there in verse 34 with these words, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. If anyone would, den- t- uh, if anyone would follow after me, Let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Those are sobering words, aren't they? Being a follower of Christ means we deny ourselves. That's the first thing Jesus gives us in that that list there in verse 34. Being a follower of Christ means we deny ourselves, which means we set aside our agendas and we live by Christ's agenda. We set aside our priorities and we begin to live by His priorities. We set aside our pleasures and we live for the pleasure of Christ. We set aside our glory and we live for His glory. To follow Christ means we deny ourselves. Being a follower of Christ also means we take up our cross. That's the second one in that list in verse 34. Being a follower of Christ means we take up our cross. Think about that for a moment. What was the cross? It's a symbol of suffering, wasn't it? We just talked about that. To follow Christ means we live with a daily willingness to suffer. How do we live that out practically? We, we do that when we choose the way of suffering, when we sacrificially love and serve one another. We choose the way of suffering when we live and speak in a way that is countercultural, not not in a hip sort of way. You know how it's kind of hip to be countercultural? Like I'm talking about being against culture. Saying and doing and living in ways that, that the culture isn't so crazy about. As followers of Jesus, we choose to not follow the world. We choose to not go with the cultural flow. And so what we say and what we believe and how we live will not always be popular and might even border and cross the line into offensive. This is what it means that we deny ourselves and we take up the cross. And being a follower of Christ also means, shocker, I know, we follow Christ. We follow Christ. And so we strive to know him. We strive to live by his word. We strive to follow his example. We submit all we have and all of who we are to him. This is exactly what it means that he is Lord. And that's ultimately what we're talking about here in this last section is the Lordship of Christ. As followers of Christ, we're called to submit all of who we are to his Lordship. Jesus is making it really clear in this passage, to be a Christian is to go all in with Christ. To be a Christian is to go all in with Christ. There's no such thing as a half in or a part Christian, a 60% Christian. It's kind of like marriage in this regard. And, and I use this parallel because the Bible often talks about our relationship with God in marriage relationship terms. But can you imagine me going into my marriage thinking I can still see old lovers? Can you imagine me going into marriage, seeing my time as my own? Can you see going into marriage with me saying to my wife, I- I'm going to have my own bank account. Like, I'm going to have my own money. No spouse would be okay with this, nor should they be. When I said I do, I was also saying I'm all in. I was standing at that altar saying every part of this, like it or not, you have it all. I was saying in that moment that I now belong to another. And all that I have and all of who I am will be given for Terry's good and the good of our marriage. To follow Christ is a lot like that. To follow Christ is to be all in. You belong to him and he has all of you. He's Lord of your marriage, Lord of your singleness, Lord of your sexuality, Lord of your time, Lord of your vocation, Lord of your money, Lord of your words, Lord of your fears, Lord of your wounds, Lord of your past, present, future. He's Lord of every part of your life. To follow Christ is to give him your all. And listen to me, even the hidden parts. Even the parts that you want to hold back. Even the parts that you like to keep control of. Jesus is saying, verse 34, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. It's all his. Jesus did not come to be your genie, making your every wish come true. He did not come to be your personal life coach, helping you to achieve your goals. He died and he rose again to be Savior and Lord. And Lord. Does he have all of you? Here's a a quick and easy test you can apply. The Bible. Ask yourself this question. Am I willing to submit myself to all that this book says? Am I willing to submit myself to all, to everything that this book says? Not just the parts I like or the culturally accepted parts, but all of it. If we're serious about submitting to his lordship, we must be serious about submitting to his word. Now, if this is sinking in the way that I think that it should from the words of Jesus, then a fear-inducing question may be creeping up in your mind right now. And it might go something like this. But Joe, if, if I live like this, wouldn't that the, be the end of a happy life for me. I mean, this whole submitting to Christ thing with all of who I am thing, it sounds like drudgery. Well, my response to that is what if God has ordained it such that our submitting to Christ and our joy go hand in hand? What if God has so designed it That our obedience to him, our submission to him, and real, true, genuine life go hand in hand. And isn't that exactly what Jesus is saying in that very next verse, verse 35? Hear it from the mouth of Jesus. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Do you see that? Dying is gain, is what Jesus is saying. In losing my life for the sake of Christ, guess what? I actually find true life. Jesus told a parable in a different part of the Scripture that puts it this way, and I'm going to change it to make it a little bit more like something we would understand, but you'll recognize the parable probably. Are are any of you yard sailors? No shame here. There's a no judgment zone. Anybody a yard sailor? Come on, let me see the hands. One one or two, one or two. Okay, imagine, let's just for the sake of this illustration, imagine you're a yard sailor. And imagine you're out early on a Saturday morning because that's what yard sailors do. They go out really early and they hit the local yard sales. And so you're out doing that. And you walk up to one of the sales and, and this particular person has a bunch of different paintings out. And as you look at the paintings, you're, you're an art person, you're an art aficionado. I almost hurt myself saying that word. You're an art aficionado. And you look at one of the pieces of art and it looks like a Renoir. And you look closer and you see that the signature at the bottom is a Renoir. And you pull it up on your phone, and sure enough, it's a Renoir. And then you look to see what that painting is worth, and it's worth $10 million. And it's at this yard sale. And you look at the little yard sale pink circle Sticker on the bottom of the frame and it says $25. Now, let me ask you are you going to have any problem forking over that $25 for this Renoir? Well, some of you would try to talk the seller down because I know we've got some of those in this room, but you would have no problem handing over those $25 you would gladly hand over that money knowing the fortune that you're getting in return. A missionary named Jim Elliott once said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep our lives to gain what he cannot lose, eternal life. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. In giving our lives to Christ, in submitting to his lordship, we find life. We gladly give the $25 to gain the fortune. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus is bringing us to a fork in the road who do you say that he is? Who do you say that he is? Let me take just two or three sentences from the Lewis quote from earlier. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the Son of God or else he's a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Who do you say that he is? Because if he's Lord and God, then that means your whole life needs to be given over to him. Who do you say that this Jesus is? Will you come to Him this morning? He is Lord and God. He went to that cross to be Savior and Lord on your behalf and and my behalf. And we don't do anything to merit this relationship or earn it or deserve it. We simply come by faith. And so will you come by faith and give all of who you are to this Lord and Savior? Let me pray. Father, thank you that the offer of the gospel is there for us this morning. Would you give us eyes to see? Would you give us hearts to believe? Would you give us lives totally given to you and surrendered to you? Not as the basis of our, of our salvation, but as the outcome of it. <laughs> Father, thank you that as we, as we celebrate the Lord's Supper, we get we get a visual a, a tangible reminder of all that you have done for us and lord as we taste of it as we celebrate this together god would it be yet another thing reminding us that all of who we are is to be given over to you and thank you o oh lord that that is to our joy and our freedom and to true life So Lord, will we come to you now and find life? Thank you that you offer it to us in and through your son, Jesus. And we pray in his name.